0: From the Garrison Institute, this is Climate, Mind, and Behavior. I'm Eleanor Bennett. Each episode, will explore groundbreaking intersections between climate change, resilience, contemplative practice, and human behavior. Jonathan Rose is a renowned thought leader in the community development field, advancing thinking and solutions around the environment, affordable housing, community education, health, and opportunity. A frequent writer and speaker, his work has received widespread media attention from CNN to the New York Times and was profiled in E Squared, a PBS series on sustainable development. In 1989, Rose founded Jonathan Rose Companies, a multidisciplinary real estate development, planning and investment firm. The company's mission is to repair the fabric of communities by working with cities and not-for-profits to build not only housing, but also civic, cultural, educational, and infrastructure open space. Jonathan Rose is also a co-founder of the Garrison Institute with his wife, Deanna Rose, where he founded the Climate Mind and Behavior Program. His business, public policy, and not-for-profit work all focus on creating a more environmentally, socially, and economically responsible world. Jonathan Rose's new book, The Well-Tempered City, What Modern Science, Ancient Civilizations, and Human Nature Teach Us About the Future of Urban Life, is being released next week. We sat down together to discuss the book, as well as his personal journey from a college student studying psychology and philosophy at Yale in the 1970s to a renowned thought leader, real estate developer, and author, and the ways he connects compassion and contemplative practice to building resilient cities in the face of global megatrends like climate change.
1: So I first started thinking about the issues that I'm raising in the well-tempered city, literally when I was in college. And I proposed this idea as a senior thesis, and it was rejected, by the way, by my professors who said it was too ambitious and couldn't be done. And then, so I set it aside, and then starting 20 years ago, I began writing with the idea that the writing would lead towards a book. But this particular book contract came about four years ago, and I've been writing quite intently since then.
0: In the first pages of your book, you paint this scene, it's 1968 and you're 16 years old, and you're standing on, I believe it was called Welfare Island, now it's Roosevelt Island. And I'm wondering if you can kind of talk about that moment.
1: There is an island in the East River in between Manhattan and Queens that had been filled with a series of hospitals for the poor that had reached the end of their life. It was called Welfare Island and it was being rebranded as Roosevelt Island. And the idea was as an opportunity to build an entirely new community, almost like a new mini city within the city. And Rockefeller appointed um, Philip Johnson, who was then a famous architect, to be responsible for planning this new island. And Johnson reached out to several people for ideas and one was my father. So my father was a real estate developer and was very involved in helping the state. He was on the board of a state agency that oversaw health and hospitals, the building of new hospitals. He was involved in this, the development of affordable housing throughout the state. So my father said to me, come with me. I'm going to Welfare Island and we're going to try and figure out. And, I, you know, I'm supposed to come up with a vision for it. So I stood on this island and it was cold and wintry. And I remember dead leaves blowing and that was a gray day. But I could see there was just this amazing opportunity to actually dream what could you put here. At that point, you could put any, I mean, you had to figure out how to finance it, but you could put anything there. It was a blank slate. And that was an inspirational moment for me in which um, I had always been really interested in cities and interested in city planning, but somehow it all became much more palpable to me, standing in a place that was to be planned.
0: In the book, you name compassion as one of the five key elements of healthy cities. And I'm wondering if you could talk about the role of altruism and love and compassion in building resilient cities.
1: So let me begin by talking first about the other four and then we'll build to compassion. So the first one is the idea of what I call coherence. We live in a very, very volatile time. We live in a time of climate change and all the volatility that comes with that, enormous volatility in the financial markets we're seeing wars all over the world leading to migrations. So there are over 60 million people, refugees in the world right now. There are actually millions and millions of homeless families uh, in America and abroad. And the question I really ask is, so how do we design cities that are healthy and resilient in the light of not only all this current volatility, but what is likely to be increased volatility over time? So the first one is the idea of coherence, that actually cities need to have a coherent vision for where they need to go. And they need to connect their parts in a coherent way. So we see in many cities, there are a wide range of departments, a city planning department, a water department, a sewer department, a housing department, and they all work completely independently. And this is very inefficient and is very hard to bring forth a holistic vision of what a healthy city can be and build towards that if you have all these segregated functions. So actually bring them all together under an overarching vision is the goal of coherence. The second one is circularity. I take a lot of my analogies from nature and Paul Hawkins says that nature heals itself by continually connecting itself to itself. It's always weaving the fabric of itself back together. And Dan Siegel, both of those, by the way, are board members of the Garrison Institute says the healthy mind actually is healthy because it's always connecting itself to itself. Much of our economy and the way our cities function is very linear. So for example, in a typical city, a bunch of stuff comes in, materials uh, you know, steel and concrete for construction and food for people to eat and all that stuff. And within six months, 98% of whatever came into a city leaves the city as waste. It's really, really inefficient. In nature, everything works in cycles and reconnects. So for example, trees breathe in carbon dioxide and out oxygen, humans breathe in oxygen and out carbon dioxide and as we learned in almost elementary school they form this wonderful circle we see that endlessly happening in nature because it's so interconnected how things cycle in nutrient loops and energy loops and and our cities don't do that when we do do that it makes them much more resilient to climate change and population growth it also makes them have much less negative environmental impact they can actually begin to have positive environmental impacts. It makes them much more adaptable. And also they end up using far fewer materials because they're recycling much more. So one of the things we see coming with climate change is enormous droughts. And when cities begin to recycle their wastewater, purify it and turn it back into drinking water, it makes them much more able to deal with droughts. So circularity is the second principle. The third one is resilience. How do we design cities that are adaptable true natural systems have built within them nature has built within it this incredible adaptive capacity it actually is always evolving towards a solution of greater fitness we're going to come back to fitness later and you know when darwin said you know that fitness was a key part of natural selection. He didn't mean fitness, like working out in the gym and having big muscles. He meant fitness, like all the pieces fitting together. So the third concept is how do we design more resilient cities? The fourth concept is how do we build communities of opportunity and what is the true nature of opportunity? I deeply believe that the American dream, the American promise is one of opportunity. It doesn't mean that everybody's going to come out the same but it means that everybody has the same chance. And what that means is, for example, every single child should go to a school that is equally as good. In Finland, by the way, every school, it doesn't matter where you live and whether you're rich or poor, every kid goes to a school that's equally good. And Finland, by the way, is the best education system in the world. Our American children deserve that too. What we've learned about opportunity is that first of all, begins with affordable housing. There are over 20 million families in America today that spend more than 50% of their income on housing. It's a huge amount and leaves nothing, very little left over for the other necessities of life. So families need affordable housing. They need Great schools, they need great healthcare systems, they need access to healthy and affordable food, they need access to mass transit and multiple ways of getting to work and shopping, they need nearby parks and open space, civic and cultural facilities, spiritual centers. All of these things we have now learned through a lot of rigorous science are the essential components of opportunity. And when families live in neighborhoods where these things are well distributed, they do much, much better. There's actually some very interesting zip code studies that show if you take a family with young children, a poor family with young children, and move them to a variety of different locations, depending on the degree to which those constituents of opportunity are in the neighborhood, 20 years later you look at the success of their child and you can see remarkable differences in education outcomes and income outcomes simply by where they move to. So now this brings us to compassion, which is the fifth principle. All the first four things I described, we absolutely technically know how to achieve, and we financially know how to achieve, and in different cities around the world, different pieces are being actually happened. So for example, in San Francisco, 80% of all waste is recycled. In Windhoek, which is the capital of Namibia, all of their wastewater is recycled and brought back into drinking water. Anyway, we know how to do everyone. I mentioned in Finland how great the school system is. But what will it take to have the will to actually infuse our society with all these wonderful benefits. And to me, that is where compassion comes in. And we actually see that compassion is an aspect of fitness. When you look at the societies that are most fit from an evolutionary point of view, that are most both connected and able to evolve, that have that adaptive capacity, is the balance between selfishness and altruism. Selfishness sounds like a negative word, but actually the propulsion of an individual want to do better with their lives and for their families is a good thing. But that has to be counterbalanced with a desire to do good for the whole. We find that in systems that if each element of a system is only trying to maximize its own benefit and contribute nothing towards the health of the overall system, the system collapses. It is when there is a balance between self-improvement and a commitment to the whole system, that ecosystems thrive, that societies thrive. I actually believe that cities thrive and that civilization will thrive. And so compassion or altruism, I actually believe, is the missing link in the success or failure of our future.
0: So. How do you walk into a city like Mumbai or any major city and start talking about compassion? It's one thing to take 20 people at a retreat center, but how do you take a city of 12 million and say, go cultivate compassion?
1: Every city has a a culture. Every city has a communal understanding of the way people are supposed to behave and the way things are. I believe there's a bell curve of human behavior. And on one side are the saints who are ultimately altruistic and compassionate. And on the other side are the thieves who are ultimately greedy greedy and selfish. And most of us fall in between the middle. And we will never move all the way to one side or the other side. But first of all, leadership makes an enormous difference. So that when John Kennedy, for example, said, ask not what your nation can do for you, but what you can do for your nation, The nation literally shifted 20 degrees more towards what can I do for the nation. It just became part of the thing that people believed in and the culture of the nation. And so city leadership can call for people to be more generous in their thoughts. We also know that cultures are very neighborhood-based, too. There can be vast differences in any city between neighborhoods. And there's a, a sociologist named Robert Sampson who started at University of Chicago, studied Chicago, and is now at Harvard. And what he noticed is there was this thing called he called collective efficacy. That is, what is the degree to which people in a neighborhood work together for the benefit of the neighborhood? There was a great heat wave in Chicago and uh, in 1997, and... Almost a 1,000 people died. And another sociologist named Eric Kleinenberg did a map, and he studied where all the deaths took place. And as you can imagine, the wealthier neighbors had a lower death rate per 1,000, and the poor black neighbors had a higher death rate per 1,000. But there were a couple poor black neighborhoods in which the death rate was even lower than the wealthy white neighborhoods. And the reason why the death rate was lower, it turned out, is because these are places where Residents cared for each other. They checked in on the elderly. They had a, a volunteer Feed the Elderly program. The churches had outreach. They had telephone trees. And they were all doing this just as a matter, they didn't do it for the heat wave, they were doing this as a matter, of course, it was part of the culture of those neighborhoods. And those neighborhoods turned out to be much more, not only resilient to heat wave, Even in the downturns, their stores were more likely to survive. They had better economics. We saw a whole bunch of positive outcomes that came from that altruism. So we actually know that altruism and collective efficacy, working together, actually makes a difference. So what I've described is a system that is both top-down, we need leadership to evoke it, and bottom-up, in which it kind of grows out of community groups and neighborhoods. It's also something that people call middle-out. So it can come from kind of mid-level institutions like community colleges and certainly all of the faith traditions, every single one of them has altruism at its core, and they also can be really important contributor to a culture of altruism in a city.
0: And what is the difference between altruism and compassion? Because in my mind, they're intimately related, but they're not the same thing.
1: So let's talk about three things, empathy, altruism, and compassion. So empathy is feeling with somebody else. So when they're in pain, you feel in pain. And what we've actually learned is that empathy is not effective at a larger level. Um, It leads to high level of burnout. So, for example, people who work in hospital emergency rooms or, you know, firefighters or people on the front lines of social services, people working in refugee camps, if they're very empathic, They feel so much pain and suffering from the people they're experiencing that they burn out and can't function well. So we've learned actually it's well-intentioned is the wrong response. Then there is compassion. Compassion is feeling for somebody, sensing somebody's pain, sensing somebody's suffering, sensing somebody's joy too, by the way, understanding it and wanting to do well for them, wanting to relieve them of their suffering, but doing that while maintaining your own individual center, and it's motivating you to, to want to do well, but it's not actually affecting your inner being as as your own pain and suffering. And then altruism is actually, I think, taking those compassionate actions, is turning the compassionate feeling and sensibility into action in the world.
0: So in your book, you also talk about cities like New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina or New York City after Hurricane Sandy. And how each time a city is destroyed in one of these disasters it gives us this chance to rebuild and i'm wondering how do you bring that same idea into cities that aren't destroyed and are already built how can we make them more resilient
1: so i'm going to answer two different things so the first one is It's a fantastic book by an author named Rebecca Solnit called A Paradise Built in Hell. And she describes, she starts with the Great San Francisco Fire and Earthquake of 1906. And what she describes is that in almost every case when there's one of these disasters, people pull together, like like for example, in 9-11, after 9-11, the the crime disappeared. And people were just helping anybody they could in the street. What's interesting is we human beings seem to have wired within us this innate, Compassionate altruism that comes out in times of disaster you see this over and over an enormous amount of volunteering that the goodness of people seems to come out under that kind of stress and After these disasters the first thing that people always want to do is bring things back the way they were want It's just our nature. We want to restore what we're lost, but then with a little distance they realize that they can rebuild their cities better and these have proved to be fantastic opportunities to actually update a city and bring it to the 21st century. It's a terrible way to plan that you have to wait for a city to burn down or be destroyed by a hurricane or something before you can make it better. And just the way, you know, we don't like the financial policy that we support banks that are too big to fail, we almost had the same thing in our disaster policy, which is Uh, When a city we think is too important to lose gets destroyed, then the federal government states, we all get together and pay for it. We actually could be creating the same resilience before disaster strikes. So actually something I didn't put in the book was the following idea, that what we really need is a $50 billion a year investment in our city resilience rebuilding program, where we run a national competition and we say, for example, Every year, to a large city, we're going to give out a $10 million grant. And then to two smaller cities, we're going to give out a $25 billion grant. And then to medium-sized cities, two $10 billion grants. And then to a smaller city, a $5 billion grant. This is a lot of money. The cities would have to compete compete for this, and it would be how would they use that money to not only rebuild their own infrastructure, but to leverage that money with private money to really transform the city to be a cutting edge 21st century city in terms of infrastructure, in terms of education, health care, quality of life for its residents, environmental impact, economic resilience. And my sense is that if we did that for 10 years, we could not only rebuild a lot of cities, we'd learn a great deal about how to rebuild our cities. And that could then really shape our ongoing investment programs in cities.
0: As I was reading your book, I was thinking about all of these ideas of how to rebuild and how to make cities more resilient. And my initial thought was of gentrification. And okay, so we go in, we clear out the neighborhood, we make it, we put in little cute boutiques. I'm thinking Brooklyn, basically, Williamsburg. Bring in Whole Foods, but how do we make sure that it's not creating more inequality?
1: The answer is number one, as we plan, we need to both preserve existing affordable housing and make sure that its prices don't rise. And there are many ways to do that. It happens, our company has an investment fund that buys existing affordable housing and preserves its affordability. There are several other companies that also do. There are many good housing not-for-profits that also could be buying existing affordable housing. turns out it's a very good investment, and pension funds who represent working-class people could allocate more of their money towards those who are buying and preserving affordable housing. The second thing is in the new development, many cities have an inclusionary zoning or a minimum affordability requirement. So, for example, New York City has said in any rezoning, 30% 30% of any new building has to be affordable. Denver is now talking about something similar, and we're seeing that in many cities across the country. So a sense that as development proceeds, it has to be inclusive development. That's on the housing side. We've What we're really missing is on the small business and shopkeeper side. So what you see in these communities is as they gentrify, the small businesses get pushed out. To me, the answer is that if they owned their businesses if they owned their buildings, that their businesses are located, before the gentrification really took off, then they could benefit from the upside. So, for example, whole groups of artists saw that SoHo was, in the 70s, was gonna be a happening place. And they bought their buildings for very little money, turned them into co-ops, all got together, maybe they paid a floor, maybe up to $50,000 a floor. And those floors today are probably, you know, worth five to $10 million each. So by actually having a piece of ownership in the upside, then those artists get to make a decision. I can stay here for the rest of my life and afford my workspace, or I can sell it and afford to live anywhere else I want. We don't have many programs that allow small businesses in pre-gentrifying communities to have low-cost loans to be able to buy in and own their businesses. But that, I think, is a key solution.
0: And going back to your early life for a second, can you tell me a little bit about your own contemplative practice and spiritual background?
1: So I was born into a reformed Jewish family and went to Sunday school and synagogue while I was growing up. And in my teens, I became very interested in Buddhism. And then when I went off to college, I was beginning to feel... Um, disloyal, this interest in Buddhism. I felt, I'm born Jewish, I should do something about this. And I searched and I found there was an amazing teacher, a man named Zalman Schechter, Rabbi Zalman Schechter. And he had formulated a form of Jewish meditation, which he had said, although had been washed out of Reform Judaism, was part of the really deep roots of Judaism. And so I began to study with him. He was very, very inspirational. And so I kind of deepened my Jewish practice through meditation and studying Kabbalah with him. But I still was always really interested in Buddhism. And that continued. And one day I was talking to Zalman, and Zalman said to me, so? Have you taken your vows yet? You know, how serious are you about this Buddhism? And it was amazing to have one's rabbi instead of saying, you're leaving Judaism, which I didn't leave Judaism, but instead say, keep going. I encourage you go deeper and deeper in your Buddhist studies. One day he called me up and he said, and my my wife Deanne, and he said, there's a retreat I'm going to and I think you guys would really like to go to it. It's called the rabbi, the monk, and the guy in between. He was the rabbi. The monk, who wasn't really a monk, was a Buddhist teacher named Gaelic Rinpoche. And the guy in between was Allen Ginsberg, who was both, you know, held his Jewish faith and was an actively studying Buddhism. And that's how Deanna and I met Gaelic Rinpoche, who then became our Buddhist teacher. And as my studies with Gaelic Rinpoche deepened and deepened, so he teaches Tibetan Buddhism, my center of gravity really shifted there. I meditate twice a day doing Tibetan Buddhist meditation.
0: So how does your contemplative practice shape your work and specifically the writing of this book and your real estate development?
1: So there's a famous Tibetan Buddhist story. So there's a guy who goes up into a cave, he meditates for three years on love and compassion and when he's done, you know, he comes down from the mountains and down into a town and he's walking through the town and a cart goes by and the cart splashes mud on him, on his robes. And he turns to the cart driver and goes, yeah, the equivalent of God damn you, you got my robes wet. His teacher immediately appears and says, you need another three years up in the mountains, turn around and go back up. And the whole point of that is that meditation is simply a safe space to try and Turn our minds, prepare our minds to make it more full of altruism and compassion, but we actually carry that out with every sentence that we utter every day in every step in, in the way we live our lives. It is the work we do on the cushion is simply to make us better off the cushion, but the real test of life is what happens in the real world so 27 years ago i formed my i was in a family business i left the family business and just left with my secretary and started a a two-person company which is now 70 people and has five offices around the country we set out to be a for-profit company that would build very green affordable and mixed income housing and the elements of community of opportunity so we work with not-for-profits to build schools and community health centers and community cultural centers and open space and parks and things like that. So I created a company that is so mission-based that the aspirations of the greater society that I hope for imbue our work and actually affect all the decisions we make about what work we're going to do and not do. The work that I do is really complicated, really challenging. And when one is building the most altruistic, green, affordable housing or, you know, a school for homeless children or whatever, one runs into the same issues with lawyers and construction contractors and city agencies that you do if you're building the most evil thing. You know, the day-to-day issues of life continuously emerge. And we have a motto in the company called Excellence with Kindness we want to achieve the highest quality of excellence in the way we do things in the way we carry things out with. So that we have a very high standard of what we hope to achieve, but we're always failing. And in those moments of failure, when you want to do correct yourself, correct others who work with you, correct others who work against you, you can always do that in a nasty way or you do it in a kind way. And there's a continuum in between and we're never ever perfectly kind, but it's something that we try towards.
0: And in your book, you talk a lot about megatrends like income inequality and terrorism and climate change. And I'm wondering, first of all, are you hopeful? And if so, how do you remain hopeful in the face of all that?
1: On one hand, I'm a realist. Climate change, I believe, is real. I believe it's human caused. And I believe it's going to have enormously negative effects on our cities. And same with income inequality. And one of the things that we have seen is that throughout the history of civilizations when the climate changes and there is enormous inequality, in almost every case those civilizations have collapsed. We've also seen, as I mentioned in the uh, Rebecca Solnit case, that when you can create a civilization in which altruism can arise and mutuality can arise, these civilizations are enormously resilient and evolve beyond the threat that struck them and become better places. And that is my hope. I think the choice is really ours. I think we all have to be optimistic to be willing to invest in the choice of creating resilient and altruistic cities. But I think if we do, we're gonna succeed.
0: So I have a lot of friends that I talk to about climate change, and many of them, thankfully, are on the side of, they're on my side, let's do something about this, it's happening, it's real, and we have to have optimism and hope to be able to take action. And then I have friends who basically, they do believe in it, but they feel despair and grief and just think, how in the world can we possibly do anything? What would you say to them?
1: I'd say, if each one of us does the best we can, it all adds up. You know, I often think of the biblical image of the scales of justice, and if each one of us puts one grain of sand on the good side of the scale of justice, then justice happens. And what's also interesting is we have seen enormously how individual actions have rippling effects through systems. And we have tipping points too, and tipping points can be quite small. So for example, if 15% of people choose to buy electric cars and drive electric cars, then the market tips significantly so that many, many more electric cars are made. You don't have to get all the way to 50% to change the world. Often very small percentages can have very huge impacts. When I was in my teens and early 20s, the idea of solar energy was kind of considered a hippie alternative thing that was never really going to happen. And same thing with wind power. There are now, I believe, six times more solar and wind jobs in the United States than coal jobs. I believe that individual action done collectively when a bunch of people all do something together, that has enormous power to make change.
0: Thank you. I'm going to bring that back and tell them. What do you hope people take from your book? If there's one thing that they walk away with, what is that? The
1: book ends with a quote from an architect named Christopher Alexander, in which he said, making wholeness heals the maker. And what I hope that people walk away from is an ability to see how in however their life intersects with the community in which they live, and the book was written for everybody from the top leaders to regular citizens, that everybody sees how in the work that they do in the degree to which they intersect in their neighborhood, in their community, in their city or in their region, that they try and make that a more whole and resilient place. And in doing so, that they are rewarded with wholeness themselves.
0: Thank you, Jonathan, for joining me today.
1: Thank you very much. I really enjoyed this interview.
0: To join Jonathan Rose for a discussion of the ideas in the Well-Tempered City, how they apply to your community, and a book signing, visit welltemperedcity.com events. To learn more about the Garrison Institute's Climate, Mind, and Behavior Program, visit garrisoninstitute.org, where you can also listen to an archived podcast of this show, join our mailing list, and sign up for our monthly email newsletter, delivering the latest research and programs from around the world that promote resilience in a changing climate, right to you. Our theme music is composed by Zoe Keating. You can find her music on iTunes or on her website, zoekeating.com.